Aloha. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Asthma. For those who have it, a severe attack can make you feel like you're breathing through a tiny straw. Even on a good day, you might not feel like you can take a deep breath with ease. For many, it's a lifelong problem that they try their best to manage, but how do you know if you have asthma? How do you know if it's mild, moderate, or severe? Or when would the newer treatments like bronchial thermoplasty help? Well, we might have some answers for you. We have Dr. Warren Tamamoto in the studio, Chief of Pulmonology at Kaiser Permanente, and we'll be taking your calls in just a few minutes at 941-3689 on Oahu, toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. According to the Centers for Disease Control in Hawaii, there are over 100,000 adults diagnosed with asthma and over 40,000 children. Treatments are available based on whether or not the asthma is considered mild, moderate, or severe. But how do you know which category you fit in? Well, Dr. Warren Tamamoto is in the studio, and he's going to help answer that question for us. Dr. Warren, welcome to The Body Show. Thank you, Kathleen. I'm happy to have you here. Asthma is that topic that a lot of people don't know if they have it or they don't. Can they get it when they're older? Basically, what is asthma? You know, asthma is often uh, described more than a simple definition, but it's described as an inflammatory disorder of the airways. And the symptoms are coughing, wheezing, congestion, shortness of breath, Um we recognize them because they very often have airflow obstruction on spirometry. Spirometry is that breathing test that you have done in your doctor's office. Uh, we know that it's a disease where uh, st- uh, irritants to the airway will induce that inflammatory reaction. The smooth muscles in the bronchial tree contract and constrict the airways and uh, result in the symptoms of wheezing and shortness of breath. Now, is all wheezing asthma, or can you have wheezing from some other reason? Yeah, that's a very good question because <clears throat> not all wheezing is asthma, and that's an old uh, medical saying, and that not all that wheezes is asthma. For example, in elderly or older patients, heart failure because of uh, edema and bronchial muc- muc- in your bronchial tree can uh, cause wheezing that uh, sounds very much like asthma. So wheezing is a symptom and still requires some testing to figure out uh, what the cause is. Now, who gets asthma? Is this something that's genetic? Does it run in families? Is this unusual that people would just sporadically get it? Or is it an inherited issue? It's uh, it's both. It very often is an inherited issue, and that is uh, patients who are in families and who have uh, allergic predisposition, say they have hay fever, So they know that in a dusty environment or cats and dogs and start getting a runny nose, sneezing, itchy eyes, watery eyes, we know that they are uh, more prone to developing asthma. But So asthma can be allergic, and those are cockroach, house dust, cats and dogs, grass, but it can also be non-allergic. So if we have non-allergic asthma, then it's not something that, you know, if you happen to be dusting that day or if you happen to be around pets, they may not be triggers for your asthma because it's not related to an allergy. It could just be some other inflammatory response that your lungs have. 
That's correct. They often have may respond, for example, to perfume or cigarette smoke or other uh, irritants and dusts in the air. Can you just have asthma that flares up without any irritation? Can it just flare up on its own? Yeah, I think it can, but uh, often if it does flare, we either think about some trigger, and sometimes the trigger is, uh, say, a viral infection. So a lot of them uh, are caused by a mild cold or viral infection and then an asthma episode. So you could actually have asthma, not know that you have it, and only notice it after you've had a respiratory infection, and you just then you start to manifest some of the symptoms, prolonged coughing and wheezing. That's correct. So many times asthma will start off in childhood, but it can also be quiescent for many years and, say, start later in life. And many times after, say, a viral infection induces coughing and wheezing that persists. Now, if you have no symptoms and you don't know you have asthma, then you don't need to worry about using regular inhalers or treatment if it's not affecting you at all until you're sick. That's correct. If you're if you're having no problems with wheezing, coughing, congestion, and for example, you're not waking up at night with symptoms or you're not having exercise intolerance, you really don't probably will not need treatment. Now, you know, you mentioned exercise intolerance. How do you know if you're wheezing because you have asthma versus you're just darn out of shape. I mean, you know, you could actually be short of breath going up the hill, and it's not asthma. It's just when was the last time you got up off the couch and got up the hill? How do you know the difference? That's, I would say we um, physicians have a difficult time um, with that problem also. So it's a matter of uh, how much of an exercise limitation. Um, we'll often do simple studies such as spirometry, which measures your airflow obstruction, and uh, at there are times when we may want to try that patient on asthma inhalers and see if it makes a difference. If it is asthma, it should improve their symptoms. And if it's not asthma, it's just out of shape, it's still hard to get up the hill. Yes. And, well, part of the evaluation always is looking for other reasons for shortness of breath. And that would be a little different topic. Sure. So we talked about this spirometry test. You've mentioned it twice already. What is spirometry? And is this something done in the office? Is this a, there are some people that do complete pulmonary function testing. Describe for me what it would be like if I came to see you and said, that's it, I'm wheezing, I think I have asthma. And you said, let's do spirometry. What would that be like? Explain how that would go. Spirometry in the office is these days done with the little handheld device, very sophisticated, uh, able to measure the speed of airflow. As you blow out, it measures the speed of the air coming out, and it does calculations to um, calculate what the volume of air comes out per time. So, for example, the number that we most focus on is called FEV1, forced expiratory volume in one second. So in the first one second of a very hard forced effort, um, It'll, the result will be something like, uh, say, two liters of air in the first one second. And we know by comparing that to what we expect for that particular patient's age, sex, and height, that is what their predicteds are, we can tell whether or not they have airflow obstruction. And so if they do, that's leading you to think, okay, we might have a problem with asthma or something else. That's correct. If they do have airflow obstruction, we would think about asthma and other Respiratory diseases that cause airflow obstruction. So the test takes about how long? Oh, I would say it takes uh, maybe five minutes or so. 
So yeah. if you really are concerned, you can do this spirometry test. Find out within five minutes or so, are you likely to have obstruction, which could be asthma, which could be COPD, it could be a couple of other things. But at least it's a pretty simple way to find out. Spirometry, yes, is a simple, very accurate uh, office procedure to see if you have airflow obstruction. So if you're out there and you're wheezing and you're worried and you think, I don't know if I want to figure, find out, it's a big test to do. Really, we just busted that myth. It's not a big test, easy to test for, and you can get it done in an office environment. You don't need to you know, plan weeks ahead in advance. You just show up and either you can do it that day or maybe another day scheduled in a lab, but pretty quick, pretty easy, pretty painless, no injections, nothing like that. That's correct. For fairly painless. Not every doctor's office has a spirometer, but uh, many do. And if they don't have one, they would know where to refer you to. And you can get an answer pretty quickly. Okay. Get a, so yes. if you have asthma and you've been diagnosed because either you had this spirometry test that showed it or maybe you were diagnosed as a kid or you had this viral infection, what defines mild asthma? Um, let's see I, uh, asthma is defined on the basis of how often you have symptoms. It's defined on the basis of how much medication it requires to control your symptoms and on the basis of uh, what your lung function is. So I, I would say mild asthmatic has symptoms, say, one or once or twice a week. Um, they require um, very mild or the lowest level of medications to control their symptoms. Like a short-acting inhaler? Like a short-acting bronchodilator and or a low dose of uh, corticosteroid. And uh, they have normal, excuse me, normal lung function. So that would define a mild asthmatic. What about an asthmatic who has a moderate degree of symptoms? Mm, Well, let's see. How about if I define like a severe asthmatic. Okay, and then in between is kind of moderate. So let's talk about severe. So a severe asthmatic would have symptoms throughout the day or more than once in a day. They would have definite airflow obstruction on spirometry. And let's say we use FEV1 as what percent of predicted for that person and it's said to be less than 60%. So they would have airflow obstruction and they would require uh, the highest level of medications that we could prescribe, and they would still often have symptoms. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. Today we have Dr. Warren Yamamoto, who's here discussing with us some information about asthma and what else we need to do to talk about how we can diagnose this condition and what serious things you need to know to treat it. So Talking again, Dr. Tamamoto. I know I said Yamamoto and you guys smiled. I saw it. I went, uh oh, okay. Dr. Tamamoto, we just mentioned mild. One or two times a week, you might have symptoms. Usually your lungs are normal and you use the short acting inhaler. We mentioned severe, and that's symptoms daily. Obstruction is possible, abnormal lung function, and multiple medications. Let's talk moderate. Let's go into that moderate category. And how does that differ? It's a little bit of both. Yes, I would say a little bit of both. You may have symptoms, say, once a day, and you'd use your short-acting inhaler, and you get relief. You um, you are using a regular medication for control of your symptoms. That is, you are using an inhaler medication designed to be a controller of symptoms once or twice a day, every day. So we're really talking, when we say these short-acting inhalers, we're talking about things like albuterol, Proventil, Proair. These are the short-acting, what we call beta agonists. Yes. And they work 
pretty quickly within about 10, 15 minutes, last only about four to six hours or so. If you puff that once and you feel great for the week, you're probably pretty okay. You're probably, yes. If you puff that once or twice and you're not okay and you need to keep doing it, then we talk about some of these longer-acting inhalers Mm. and we talk about corticosteroids. Now, we mentioned that asthma is an inflammatory issue. Is that why corticosteroids work? Yes. uh, These are anti-inflammatory corticosteroids. They are... um, we actually are very fortunate that they work so well inhaled because when you inhale them, you get very little of the systemic effects that people are afraid of. So they are very safe. They're used for many, many years with good results. But, uh, yes, um, inhaled corticosteroids would be considered the uh, most essential uh, medication to control asthma. And if you're supposed to use that regularly and you just don't, do you get permanent effects in your lung that are irreversible? Well, I think that uh, we do see patients who are um, uh, many years into asthma, and we do have airflow obstruction. And um, we know that in spite of uh, whatever medications we give them, they no longer return to normal. So we used to think of asthma as a normal lung, asthma, and then become normal again. And now we know that uh, these patients have severe, many times, airflow obstruction that, in spite of whatever new treatment we have, do not return to normal. So we do think that uh, if you don't get treated, you can end up with uh, severe airflow obstruction. And so it can cause a progression to the point where you can't go back to normal. Now, could that just be the effect of having asthma for a long period of time? Yes. It's kind of hard to say. It's kind of hard to say. It's hard to say in any one patient, could you have prevented them from reaching this? Even if you'd used medications regularly, might you still be in the same situation? And I I think the answer is yes, you you may be. But you never want to find that out. No, I I mean, certainly. I think you'd want to be treated, you know, as best you can. Plus, it controls your symptoms. Plus, the even standard asthma medications inhalers, they do, we know, control the symptoms so that you don't end up in the emergency room and you don't end up in the hospital. So there are good things that come out of these uh, medications. And the reason we don't want to have people show up in the emergency room or the hospital, not because we don't want to take care of them, but that means that their asthma has exacerbated to a degree where it can cause some some serious problems, infections and whatnot that really can affect them long, long term. That's right. That's right. We know that if we look at patients who've died from asthma, they are in the group that do not take their medications regularly, uh, forget to refill them, not using them properly or, and as a result, go back to the emergency room and hospitalization recurrently. Well, and that's a really important point. Some people say, asthma, oh, it's not a big deal. I just use my inhaler. But people can die from asthma. That's correct. You can. And that, that's fairly serious. That's a good enough reason I can think of to make sure that if you get diagnosed, you use your medications regularly. That's right. Asthma can be a serious illness. It can be sudden. That is... You, if you have asthma, you may feel well, relatively well for a period of time, ignore your symptoms, and then end up with with a serious episode. And in that case, you may never get back to the normal lung function you were expecting. That's correct. Now, one of the types of medications that has come out in the past, and now we sort of 
tend to shy away from it a little bit are the long-acting beta agonists. There were some ingredients that were included in the steroids, and there are some names that it might be familiar to people. Cerevent, um, Advair is one of these. There's Symbicort, Dulera. Some of these combine two types of ingredients, and that might be good in certain situations and might not in others. What's the latest on whether or not you should have the dual ingredient inhaler versus just the corticosteroid inhaler for maintenance? Yes, there, there is always uh, been a little bit of concern about safety of the long-acting bronchodilators because of they do have some effects on the heart. They are um, recommended for patients who are in the moderate to severe asthma category. So if you're in the intermittent or very mild asthma, they're not indicated. And for those patients, it would be best to stick to the inhaled steroids. So if you have more severe disease, the benefits of those combination inhalers outweigh the risks, in our opinion. So if you were just using your short-acting inhaler and that stopped working as well, you could add the corticosteroid-only inhaler, if that kept you with your asthma under very good control, sit tight. That would be the way preferred way to treat you. If it doesn't, then you go to the dual ingredient. Yes. Because that was kind of a change from the last few years and, and certainly a change in a good way. I mean, I guess the general idea is the less medicine that you need to control it, the better because you want to keep that option open for later if you need those other medications. That's correct. There are patients who are on higher levels of medication, but we find that if they are very regular with medications, the inflammation is reduced, The this whole inflammatory cascade that's going on in their airways becomes uh, reduced, so they can actually go down to lower uh, medication levels and still have control. And that's one of the other things that have come out. Sometimes the corticosteroid inhalers that we used to say you have to use twice a day, if you're extremely well controlled, you might be able to back off on that only with your doctor's supervision, though. Yes, I would say that that would be very important. Um, We do want patients to be on the lowest level of medications that they need that still controls their symptoms. The key is control. Yes, All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Warren Tamamoto. I got it right this time. Yes, thank you. He is the Chief of Pulmonology at Kaiser Permanente, and we are talking about asthma. When we come back, we're going to talk some more about what are some of these serious medications and what are some of the new treatments for people who are diagnosed with severe asthma. You can join our conversation at 941-3689, toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Hello, everyone. Michael Titterton here doing the best I can to convey the very real sense of gratitude we feel to everyone who participated in Challenge 2014, which came to a nice and noisy close just before 7 o'clock on Friday night. A full quarter of HPR's annual budget was raised, and a lot of fun was had doing it. All of us at HPR are looking forward to serving you for the next six months in the same spirit. Thanks so much. Cooking, it turned out, was a magical act, a feat of transformation, a way of turning the homely and familiar into something finer, like carving a pumpkin into a lantern. Michael Shavon Bakes a Cake, this week on Selected Shorts, from PRI, Public Radio International. Tuesday at 5 p.m., following Travel with Rick Steves.
Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. We're talking today with Dr. Warren Tamamoto about asthma and whether or not this is something that you might have, and if so, do you need to get treated for it? He's the chief of pulmonary at Kaiser Permanente, and we're talking about what are the differences between mild, moderate, and severe asthma. We're going to talk in a few moments about a new treatment for those severe asthma sufferers that can really make a huge difference. If you want to join our conversation, if you or someone you love has been diagnosed with asthma and you're concerned about it, you can call us at 941-3689, toll free from our neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Now, before the break, Dr. Warren, we were talking a little bit about different types of medications, and we've covered mild asthmatic, and we've covered part of that moderate category. Let's talk about our folks who are suffering with severe asthma. Now, in addition to using inhalers, sometimes these people might be using other medications that are tablets. Singular is one of them, kind of helps with the immune system, helps to stop it from being so hyperreactive in the airways. Um, People can use nebulizer treatments if necessary, really help to give significant doses of medication to the lungs. When we talk about severe asthmatics, how many, out of all your asthmatics, is this a small portion of the population, or is this more than half of your asthmatics? That, uh, I'm sorry, which? The severe group. How many people group? are really severe? Probably something like uh, 5 to 10% of asthmatics are said to be in the severe group. And that's defined by daily exacerbations, use of inhalers, and altered lung function at a baseline. Yes, that's right. Low lung function. They're using the um, most potent medications, and they still have symptoms every day. Now, is there any predominance gender-wise? Do more men have it, more women? Is it a certain age group that we see that get into the severe category, or could it really be just about anybody? I think it can be just about anybody that can be in the severe group. And I don't believe that there is a predispositional male over female. I believe it's about the same. And age-wise, if you get asthma when you're very young, does it tend to be more severe than if you get it when you're older? Well, I have to say that since we don't don't see patients in the uh, 18 and younger group or 20 and younger group, those since we don't see those patients, I really can't comment on those. But I I would say, yes, as asthmatics get older, they do tend to, um, the ones that are, going to progress and develop severe asthma would tend to be a little in the older age group. So even if you think you're okay, you're in your 20s or 30s, this could still progress. Yes. If you're having symptoms, you should still be checked. Now, we just had a shy caller who called in, said she's a member of your fan club, says you're fabulous. But she made an interesting comment. She said that she was diagnosed with asthma and she lost a lot of weight and it helped her with her breathing. Now, is this one of those situations where when we talk about treatment, if you have moderate or severe asthma and you do have issues with weight, can reducing your weight help you to treat it even if it's the allergic asthma? I'm not sure if it would help with the allergic uh, component. What about the non-allergic folks? I think that um, just generally you would uh, require less uh, lung capacity to do it so you're not say, pulling as much weight. So you may have that feeling that your breathing is better. I'm not sure that your breathing will actually get better just solely from weight loss. But uh, we do we do find that uh, patients, for example, who start 
slowly, exercising more regularly, do find that their breathing gets better also. Well, and I wonder if it's not like physical therapy for the lungs, you know, pulmonary rehabilitation, so that if you don't use your lungs to full capacity, you have asthma, maybe you don't exercise, you start to add the exercise, just like your muscles may get stronger, your lungs may get stronger. And hey, if you lose weight in the process, double whammy, you'll feel better. I I do. We do encourage it. I do think it probably helps them. And I do think that uh, when you exercise, you know, you're inflating, using all of the areas of your lung. Um, air going in and out probably moves mucus around and helps you get uh, move it out of your lungs. So I think uh, probably exercise and then secondarily weight loss would help you. Now, what about those folks who have reflux, gastroesophageal reflux, heartburn, or acid that sneaks up in the back of their throat? That can also exacerbate asthma. It seems to be one of the reasons that patients can exacerbate asthma. So if uh, patients do have symptoms of reflux, we do prescribe a regimen to try and minimize reflux and or medications. Yes. And so if you can treat the reflux, of which part of treating that may be medicine, part of treating it may be weight loss. So that if you don't have reflux, you may not have that experience when the acid sneaks back there, wakes you up in the middle of the night. Yes, I think um, it does seem to be a factor. I think in terms of uh, controlling it, and then the asthma will definitely get better. doesn't seem to um, work quite as well as we hoped. But, uh, yes, if they do have reflux, it, it does help them. Then sometimes treating the reflux can mm-hmm. prevent these exacerbations. That's correct. Okay. Now, what about people who have the severe, severe asthma. We said about 5 to 10% of folks may be in this category. If they've maxed out their uses of inhalers, if they've taken the other medications, tablets, and everything else you can think of, there's a new procedure that the FDA has approved called bronchial thermoplasty. What is that, and how did we ever figure that out? You know, I'm not sure um, why someone actually started doing bronchial thermoplasty, I know that uh, it started with experiments in animals, and in animals they were able to show uh, that uh, bronchospasm improved with thermoplasty. What made them start that, uh, I'm not actually sure. But uh, it is a way to apply heat treatment to the airways, that is thermal energy, with the use of a small catheter that goes down into the bronchial tubes. And we... um, It's been shown that you apply heat to the small airways that are visible at bronchoscopy. And um, over three treatments, you treat all of the airways, uh, asthma improves. Is it because there's thickening of the walls of the bronchial tubes from the inflammation, and by heating it up, maybe you're thinning that area so it's less reactive? That's uh, what's been found in... uh, In animal studies, that is, uh, when they've treated animals with thermoplasty and go back, it reduces the smooth muscle in the airway. So you know that uh, your airways are like the branches of a tree, and the small airways carry the air in and out. There's muscles that ring around your airway, and when they uh, contract, they constrict the airway, so the airway is smaller, and then you have difficulty moving air in and out. So bronchial thermoplasty seems to reduce that smooth muscle mass. And there's not as much muscle, so you're not, not as much bronchospasm. For people who have had this done, they've gone from really severe asthma to less than that. Do they wind up never needing inhalers or rescue inhalers? Or what, what kind of success do you see in this group of folks who have had the treatment? I know there's not that many 
because it hasn't actually been around that long. But out of those that you know, how are they doing? Um, They're doing very well. They don't improve their lung function much, but what improves are their symptoms. Their symptoms uh, get much better. They must still continue their asthma medication, so we try and be very clear with patients that we're trying to improve their overall well-being and their symptoms, um, but we won't uh, recommend or they shouldn't expect to stop their asthma inhalers. But the procedure has been shown to reduce uh, emergency room visits and improve quality of life for those who've had it. Well, and that may be the real key, improving quality of life. And someone who restricts their activities on a regular basis because of their asthma, having the ability to to really function during the day, to breathe, to not feel like they're breathing through a straw, to be able to exercise, to do other activities, to me sounds like the best reason to consider something like this if you have really severe asthma. That's correct. That's one of the great benefits of the procedure in uh, as long as you do it in the, in the right patient. Now, the reason that you're doing this three treatments, is that because you're treating part of the lung each time? That's correct. You do what's called the right one lobe of the lung, which is a right lower lobe. Then you do the left lower lobe. And a third procedure is both upper lobes. And because uh, following the procedure, patients will have asthma exacerbation. So their symptoms will get worse for three to seven days afterwards. And um, I think early on they realized that uh, if you treat the entire lung, they'll really be in trouble. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Warren Tamamoto from Kaiser Permanente, and we're talking about asthma and a new treatment for severe asthmatics, bronchial thermoplasty. If you or someone you love has had severe asthma, or if you've heard about this treatment and want to know more, you can join us at 941-3689, toll free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Now, Dr. Warren, we were talking about who are the right patients for this. So this is that very select population, maybe 5 to 10% of folks, who might have severe asthma. Certainly not for everybody. That's correct. So would you, in this situation, recommend something like this for everybody with severe asthma? Or does it have to be someone who's still having a lot of exacerbations, even though they, they, it's affecting their quality of life, their daily activities, even though they're kind of okay on the medicine. Yes, I think it just requires um, judgment and a lot of interaction between the doctor and the patient. So we like to, that is our allergists and our pulmonologists, we like to see the patient and follow them for a period of time and see if we can, there are other things that we can do to improve their asthma control. Also, we know that uh, some patients that ideally we think we'd love to do it on their lung function is too low. So right now there is a lower limit of FEV1 or lung function, and it's not recommended for those in the most severe group with very abnormal lung function. Uh, it's not a recommended procedure for them. So it's almost as if you, it's, you can be too bad and you can be not bad enough, and we want just the right patient. You got it. It's Goldilocks. Too big, too small, or just right? Just right. So you really have to find that just right individual. I can only imagine that if you have really severely compromised lung function and if you were to get worse before you get better after the procedure, you have to be able to tolerate that getting worse time for that three to seven days in order to have the procedure be successful. 
Right, and I think that's the reason for the recommended lower limit of FEV1. So some of the patients uh, do have to be in a hospital for asthma exacerbation after the procedure, but you really don't want to avoid, I'm sorry, you really want to avoid, say, having a patient uh, be in intensive care because of respiratory failure, and those, you know, we just want to avoid that. All right, we've got a caller on the line. We have Jennifer from Honolulu. Jennifer, welcome to The Body Show. Hi. What can we do for you today? Um, I am uh, Dr. Tamamoto's patient, and I just want to say that um, with him being able to um, do the procedure, because I had the bronchial uh, thermoplastic procedure done, I was very grateful because it has made a big difference in my life. So you've had it done. I've had it done. And what were some of the things that you noticed? Prior to doing it, your asthma was bad enough that you were having troubles every day? Every day, um, it would wake me up in the evenings. I was restricted from doing a lot of things because I would have exasperations. Um, for the past five years, I was hospitalized every year for at least um, anywhere from 10 to 21 days just to try to get me back, you know, out of there. And <clears throat> having the procedure done, um, I, the very last procedure that we did, exactly two weeks to the day, I was getting ready to go to sleep, and I noticed something different, and the difference was I wasn't wheezing. And I had never, it had never been so silent for so many years that um, that's why I'm, I'm a true believer, and just thank God that he was able to do the procedure. So you had this done. Now I'm curious, immediately afterwards, did you feel that kind of it got worse for a few days before it got better? Yes. And you were able to tolerate that, made it through, came through with all of the three the three episodes. And now, you know, when you look back, how much better do you think your breathing is? I'd say a good 90%. Wow, that's you pretty know? fantastic. Yeah, I went from breathing through a coffee stirrer. That's a good analogy, a, okay. Yeah, to a paper towel roll. That's how much uh, better I feel. I'm, I actually move around a lot more, and I'm not out of breath. I, I, um, I'm a true testament to the procedure being um, as successful as it was. You really are, absolutely. Now, uh, Dr. Warren, you know Jennifer, and she had this procedure done. Was she like that ideal candidate, that person that really was perfect for it, good enough lung function, not so bad, but also severe enough asthma that it was time to take action? We were a little worried that she might be too severe. She spent uh, time at the lower limit of the uh, lung function spirometry FEV1 um, uh, floor that we uh, that is set by the uh, company that produces the machine. So it required um, multiple visits to try and adjust her medications. So she was she. We all felt she was an ideal candidate. We were just concerned about her lung function. Wow. So Jennifer, you were almost in the too severe category. Yes, yes. And yet now look at how much better you've done. Fantastic. It, yeah, it's definitely turned my life around. I couldn't begin to say thank you enough, you know. Um, and I was glad that, you know, he he did everything he needed to do. And he had a village, you know, of people at Kaiser that just, that their team was just excellent. And I've been with Kaiser for so many years, and this is one of my best experiences there. All right. Well, thanks so much for sharing that, Jennifer. To hear from somebody who's had the procedure done, 
who really can testify to how much better they feel. That's absolutely fantastic. So thanks for sharing that with us today. And thank no you, Dr. Warren, for helping Jennifer out so well. Oh, you're welcome. All right. We've got another caller on the line. We've got Steve from Pearl Harbor. Steve, welcome to The Body Show. Yes. Um, how are you today? Doing great. How about yourself? Uh, can't be better. Uh, I was wondering about um, whether the doctor knows of uh, studies that have been done, uh, whether people uh, living close to heavily traveled roadways or polluted areas, whether uh, those people, if they move away from those areas, does their asthma get better? And um, the fact that if they've lived there for a long period of time, does that produce asthma? It's an interesting question, you know, because it's not like we have any traffic here in Honolulu at all. I always feel bad for those people who sit in their car all day, breathing in the exhaust and the fumes. That, that to me, has just got to be horrible. So let me see if I understand your question, Steve. The first one is, if you, if you live by a heavily traveled road, a lot of pollution, has Dr. Warren ever heard of moving away, making people feel better? Yeah. And the second part of that is, if you've lived there for a long time, could it actually cause you to get asthma? So those are two really interesting questions. And, and we'll, why don't we take them one step at a time? So, Dr. Warren, Steve wants to know, if you live by heavily traveled roads, if you move away, have you heard of people? I've had folks tell me, I can breathe in Vegas and I can't breathe in Honolulu. And I figure it's the humidity and it's the air or something else. Is it true that if you're somewhere where you're exposed to something, that moving away might help? Yes, I think so. That'd be, it's just very hard to. It's kind of um, drastic, you know, yeah, leave, but it's, okay. It's hard to, because we do, we do get asked periodically by patients who say, should I move? And it's uh, very hard to predict ahead of time because you really don't know everything that is a trigger for that patient. And it may, you may seem, you may think that it's the uh, roadway dust, but it may be something in your home then maybe something around your home that you're not sure about or maybe someplace, something in your workplace. So it's very hard for us to know because we, we can't always uh, know every trigger for a particular patient. The uh, lung, lung Association has been looking at uh, uh, diseases of the lung and whether it's induced by air pollution um, for many years. Uh, I don't. So I think that the, uh, the answer is becoming yes, you can develop airway symptoms, uh, symptoms such as cough, possibly a little bit of asthma um, from heavy exposure to dust. So that's the second half of your question, Steve, is, yeah, if you have been exposed for a long time, this really could be contributing to your symptoms and might lead to the development of lung problems. Well, I just have one other question. Okay. Uh, the... Um I noticed that uh, in a study in the brain that uh, when you breathe in, the uh, the olfactory bulb goes right into where the amygdala is in your brain, and that uh, which in turn uh, has control over your, uh, let's just say, your long-term memory and emotional well-being. Um, would would pollution? Uh, being that you're breathing it right in, uh, would the pollution affect that portion of your brain? Well, there is something called the blood-brain barrier. And even though your olfactory nerves in your nose actually help to provide 
humidity actually for the air, but they also help to provide the sense of smell. There is a barrier, so you wouldn't necessarily have stuff that you breathe in go directly into the brain, um, or we would see a lot more troubles in the brain than we do. So luckily there is a barrier, so you don't have to worry about that sort of an issue um, affecting memory or affecting anything else along those lines. But certainly if you have bad asthma and you're not breathing and you can't get oxygen in, the lack of oxygen can have an effect on your brain, but it wouldn't be coming from the olfactory nerve area. So it's an interesting question, and it's it's something that I'm sure they're looking into doing some research about trying to trying to find out if asthma can actually have negative consequences to people's brain function, but I think more on the lines of oxygenation and providing the ability to get oxygen in. So it was an interesting question, Stephen. I think those were two really good, three really good questions that hopefully we will be able to to discuss a little further. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Dr. Warren Tamamoto. He is the chief of pulmonology at Kaiser Permanente. And when we come back, we're going to talk to some more folks who have asthma and see what their experiences have been like and what sort of questions we might be able to help them with as well. You can join our conversation at 941-3689, toll free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back. It was launched in Belfast a century ago, but it's only recently that they've started to pay tribute to the most famous ocean liner of them all. You can walk down the slipways where Titanic was actually constructed. You can visit the dry dock where her propellers were put on. Plus, explore the Jewish sites of Prague and meet a woman who helps enemies in the world's hotspots make peace with one another. I meet the best people in the worst of circumstances. It's on the next Travel with Rick Steves. Tuesday at 4 p.m. following Fresh Air. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. Next time on Bite Mark Cafe, we'll find out how independent schools are innovating in education. We've invited representatives from Mid-Pacific, Iolani, and Punahou to explore new techniques to nurture creativity. That's next time on Bite Mark's Cafe, Wednesday at 5. Aloha and welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Warren Tamamoto from Pulmonology at Kaiser Permanente. And we're talking about asthma and a new treatment that's come out, bronchiothermoplasty. May not be for everybody, but for a severe asthmatic, this could make the difference between breathing through a coffee straw, as Jennifer told us, and breathing through a paper towel roll. That's a huge Big difference. That's a great analogy. So thanks for that, Jennifer. You can join our conversation at 941-3689. Tell Free Neighbor Islands 877-941-3689. We've got a caller on the line. We have Ted from Kahalu. Ted, welcome to The Body Show. Oh, I have a question that has no doing. We can't hear you so well, Ted. I think we lost you a little bit there. David, our sound engineer, is going to help us find you again. But, uh, Ted, I'm sure it was a question that had to do with asthma. Now, before the break, we were talking with Jennifer, Dr. Warren, and we were saying, boy, she had a significant improvement. But she was kind of at that lower end of maybe not even being a candidate because her lung function was so affected. Should people who have severe asthma, before they get to the point where their lung function hits that lower level, should they be looking more at this as a potential procedure to help them? 
I think that uh, it's a consideration. There are other medications for patients that uh, may also help their asthma besides the inhaled steroids and the inhaled bronchodilators. There are the uh, leukotriene agents that you mentioned at Montelukast. Um, there's also the anti-allergy or anti-IgE injectable medication that, uh, in our case, our allergists uh, prescribe. So there are um, different options and trying to figure out which one is best for a particular patient. But, yes, patients who are in that severe category having symptoms, especially, for example, being in hospital or requiring oral steroids, uh, may be candidates for this procedure. And the reason you don't want to continue to just use oral steroids, you hinted earlier about the systemic effects. What are some of those consequences of taking a lot of steroid pills to treat your breathing? Steroid medications, first of all, can be life-saving for asthma, but when you take it for months and months, um, they'll eventually contribute to, say, early cataracts, to osteoporosis or thinning of the bones, to... um, Uh, reducing muscle mass and putting on uh, more fat rather than muscle and thinning of the skin and susceptibility to infection. So So it's really a double-edged sword. That's right. They can be life-saving, but they can cause a lot of troubles as well. That's correct. You mentioned some of the other ways that we're treating asthma, looking at the IgE, which is a particular part of the immune system that helps to contribute to some allergic responses, also looking at other ways this particular thing called leukotrienes, trying to affect those as well using Singular. So really, when we talk about somebody who has asthma, there's a lot more out there than just inhalers. If their inhalers aren't working, there are some other options. And in that case, look to see if you're allergic to something, look to see if you can modify that exposure, and really try and make some other lifestyle changes to help. That's, That's exactly right. There's a lot more to asthma than just using the inhaler. And there are things like trying to modify your exposure or your irritants and uh, modify other, I'm sorry, use other medications that are modifications to the immune system. All right. Well, we have got some callers on the line. It sounds like people are hearing this and they want to know more. We've got Nancy on the line from Kaneohe. Nancy, welcome to The Body Show. Hi there. Hi, Dr. Tomamoto. Hi. Hi. Um, Yeah, I was wondering, is asthma hereditary? Great question, Nancy, because a lot of people who have it want to know, are their kids going to be affected or other family members? Dr. Warren? It's not directly uh, hereditary as in some so-called hereditary diseases, but uh, we do see that uh, families with a lot of allergic disease, and this is uh, eczema, um, hay fever, uh, their their, uh, family members, including children, are predisposed to having asthma. So not every member will develop asthma. In fact, not every person with eczema or hay fever develops asthma, but they have a higher likelihood. Okay. Do you think the environment has something to do with it too? Your environment uh, can have something to do with it, especially, say, for example, people who are allergic. Um, Some may not know that, for example, a cockroach in the home is a big problem here, and when they die, their dust um, gets into your uh, environment, and that can be a trigger for allergy. Okay. Okay, great. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks for calling, Nancy. I'm a little grossed out now about dead cockroaches getting into my environment. Thank you, Dr. Warren. 
I'll have to think about that this evening uh-huh. uh, for a while. All right. We've got another caller on the line. We've got Lono from Papakulea. Lono, welcome to The Body Show. Aloha. Aloha. Please let's not talk about cockroaches, please. The question I have is, um, is there a difference between bronchial asthma and asthma? That's a great question. Did I get I get seasonal flus that turn into bronchial asthma and acute bronchial asthma? That would be a tar- it would be the same term for the it would be different terms for the same disease, I believe. So we're trying to fool you, Lona. We're calling it bronchial asthma, but it's really just asthma. Got it. We just want to look smart and add some extra names. But That's you know right. what's interesting is because, Lono, you just said it usually happens after you get sick. And we talked about that earlier in the hour and said, you know, some people don't know they have asthma until they get a viral infection or a bronchitis, and that's when it flares. So that if they never have any symptoms, they're probably good. They don't need to take any medicine on a regular basis. Would someone like that when they got bronchitis, for example, be a great person to reach for an inhaler sooner rather than later to avoid having the asthma exacerbation at the end of their illness? Yes, that's right. So there is a term, uh, intermittent asthma. So patients who have very mild asthma so that they really do not need any medications, but when they get a virus and a cold and then cough and mucus and wheezing for a period of time and respond to medications. So Yes, and you can treat them differently because some patients say, for example, would respond to inhaled steroids still, and they may be on inhaled steroids for three weeks and clear up everything and have no symptoms and then stop their medication. So there is a small group of patients that may not need medications continuously. It just comes out certain times That's or right. with certain provocation. All right. We've got Dodie on the line from Honolulu. Dodie, welcome to The Body Show. Aloha. Aloha. What can we do for you today? Kind of asthma symptoms, kind of all my life. Like when I was a kid, uh, we'd be jumping up and down the bed, and, and I'd start coughing. So any time I got excited, I would start coughing. And then later on, I found out that was a symptom of asthma. But it was I never treated it, and my parents, I don't think, had a clue about it. And then um, so uh, back in my, um, I guess in my early thirties, I received um, about six months of inner acupuncture from a wonderful acupuncturist, and he said okay, your asthma's all better. And it was. I did fantastic, and then I got pregnant, and I never really had too much of a problem with my asthma. But since this fog has started really causing problems, I've started having more serious problems with asthma again. And so I was wondering if if I should start doing something about it, because I noticed when I cough that it actually creates stress on my eyes, the pressure. And I've heard that that's, it's not good to have a chronic cough because it adds stress to your eyes. All right. Well, Dodie, interesting question. I think what we're going to do, since we're hearing a little feedback from your phone, is we're going to talk a little bit about asthma. Because you mentioned something interesting, that you had it as a kid. Again, you were jumping on the bed. I guess your parents didn't know you were jumping on the bed. (laughs) But anyway, okay, so you don't do that now. So you had it as a kid. You were fine for a long time. You did some acupuncture, which is very curious because I think there's a lot of different things acupuncture can do that we don't completely understand in the body. And then you were great. And darn it, over the last few years, you've noticed what I've noticed, and that's VOG. It's just this weird haze that comes over from the Big Island and from the volcanoes, and it starts to cause people to have trouble with their breathing. Now, I'm curious, Dr. Warren, 
anybody can be irritated by Vogue. It's actually like a particulate matter in the air. So if you have sensitivity to that, you don't have to have asthma. Vogue can drive you crazy. Yes. But if you have asthma, Vogue can cause your asthma to be exacerbated. Well, I would say we that's uh, one of the things we think may we happen. Think may we happen. really okay. don't have enough research right now to know for a fact. But, of course, asthmatic, asthmatics do have airways that are irritated by many things. So it wouldn't be surprising that Vogue is one of the uh, irritants uh, that can exacerbate asthma. Well, you know, and I've had... I've had an individual tell me something really curious. You know, it's one of the people that I see and they have asthma and they told me Vogue days for them are just like another bad day of breathing, that they just use their short acting inhaler and they do well. But for somebody who doesn't have asthma, if they notice any change in their breathing, they're very sensitive to it. They're not used to that. It seems to bother them more than the asthmatics that I see because the asthmatics are like, hey, it's another one of these days again. Okay, let me get the albuterol and I'll be okay. Whereas my non-asthmatics say, my chest is heavy, I can't exercise, it makes me feel horrible. It's almost like the non-asthmatics are affected more. And I don't know if it's just because they're more sensitive or if they're just, they don't use inhalers so they don't have that option to just puff an albuterol and feel better. But I've kind of found an interesting, almost opposite result, which is my asthmatics just move on and say, puff on today, we'll be okay. And then the rest of us are there like, oh, I can't breathe. It really bothers us. It's sort of the opposite. Hmm. I would say I I probably don't see that many normal patients. So it's... Uh, and it's, your patient uh, population just thought wonderful about themselves. My patient population is a little bit different, <laughs> but... Um, yeah, I do. I do think that uh, well, some of those patients who are so-called normal, they may be extremely mild, very mild. You know, there are so many degrees of asthma, so maybe they do have some amount of reactive airway disease, and that's why they have symptoms. But I think the other good point about what uh, the caller was talking about is that asthma, uh, when you're young, it can often remit and be gone for many years, and then later on in adult life, thirties, even forties, recur. And if it does recur and you do have asthma, it usually doesn't go away again. It usually stays with you. All right. Well, that's unfortunate to know. But at least if you had it as a kid and you remembered how to how to treat that, maybe you can translate that over when you're an adult. Yes. All right. We've got time for one more caller. We've got B calling from Kona. B, thanks for being patient. What can we do for you? Hi. Thank you. I'm kind of reiterating the bog thing. You gotta say it right, Vog. I mean, Kona, right? We have beautiful winds from the north today. But just to let you know, too, I called last week because we love a representative from Kona, and I love your program, too. But the sulfur, I mean, the Vog is a sulfur, and I'm allergic to sulfur. And that what I'll get is nuts. I'll get this cough, a very annoying, like it'll help if I chew gum. But I had it, I've had it a little bit before on Maui, too, when I lived there. But I'm wondering if the sulfur, the fact that I know I'm allergic to sulfides. I've had sulfide antibiotic before, and I just can't take that. And, and with the VOG, I mean, my voice is raspy now, probably because of it. <laughs> Interesting, P. So are you wondering if a sulfa medication allergy can lead to a sulfur in the atmosphere allergy? Well, I'm thinking if they do have a correlation. It's a great question. I've honestly never 
never thought about that. You know, I do have a lot of folks who are allergic to sulfur in medications. You know, Bactrim is one of them. There's some other medicines like that. But I haven't really ever thought about breathing in the sulfur particulate matter because you're right. That's that's what you're getting when you're exposed to the VOG. Hopefully I said that correctly. VOG. Okay. But it's an interesting question. Dr. Warren, I wouldn't have put those two together, but I can see why people would. I I'd have to say that um I really don't have enough experience to answer answer that question. I um at one time I was told that it was uh it's a different part, particulate matter. And but I'd have to I'd have to admit that uh I'm a little short there. Well, and you know what I wonder? I have a lot of folks I know who are allergic to sulfa, sulfa in various different types of medications and they don't seem to notice that breathing on days where there's VOG is much different for them. Now, again, here on Oahu, they might have a different experience based on the amount of VOG that they're, ex- that they're exposed to. It may not be as much as in Kona, but I would think that your airways are sort of an interesting, isolated sort of a space. And for example, I'll have people who might say, you know, I'm allergic to a certain particular medication, but if they apply it topically, since it's not ingested, they don't have a reaction. Kind of similar for the airways. If you apply it topically, you may not have that same reaction as you would if you ingested it and it went into your bloodstream. So there's probably a difference of the body's response to that, I would think. I would say, I, I if now that you mention it, I would Probably I've noticed the same thing. That is, patients who do have allergy to sulfa antibiotics are not having uh, severe reactions. That uh, the main allergy is to sulfa antibiotics. Now, what do you think is up and coming in asthma treatment? We mentioned the thermoplasty. Is there anything else that's out there that might be coming down the pike soon that we should be all excited and ready for? Well, there's still a lot of research in other agents to uh, to treat asthma and mainly to modulate that inflammatory response. I don't think that there are any new medications that are really getting ready to be on the market. So a lot of it right now is still the same anti-inflammatory or drugs that try and reduce inflammation in the same class of medications that we already know about. And I think one of the big messages would be if you're doing well on your medicine, make sure that before you make any changes, you talk with your doctor. Yes, And if you're not doing well, you also talk with your doctor so that something might be able to be adjusted to help you to breathe better. Yes, they're very good. It's really a lot of communication between the patient and the doctor. All right. Well, that's word to the wise. Thank you so much, Dr. Warren, for sharing your expertise with us today on The Body Show. You're welcome. Nice being here. All right. Dr. Warren Tamamoto is the Chief of Pulmonology at Kaiser Permanente in Honolulu. If you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on our podcast, hawaiipublicradio.org, and hear the episode from today, probably later this evening, on The Body Show. You can also find links to all of our talk shows and also information on how to become a member of Hawaii Public Radio right there on our website. Our engineer today is David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week when we talk about brittle bones and osteoporosis. What can you do to keep your bones healthy and strong? We will see you right back here Monday at 5 on The Body Show. We'll see you then. Woo!